I actually, I discovered a new podcast this week. You did? I did. Share with the class. It's called That's What I'm Tolkien About. Oh my God. Yes, it is a Lord of the Rings read-along podcast. Oh my God. One episode per chapter every week. Yeah. Yeah. Really? It is fantastic. I love okay, it wait, so maybe much. I, maybe this is how I get into Lord of the Rings. Because I've tried reading, but I... I don't have the attention span sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's one, like each episode is what? Each episode of the show is one chapter of the book. Okay. So if you are reading along with the show, you go, you know, you're listening to the show decently slowly because you have to sit down yeah. and you know, bring yourself to read a whole chapter of a book. I had in grand intentions of doing that and I started doing it that way, but then I really wanted to listen to what the host has to say. Um, Her name is... MC Watt. She's a TikToker, actually. She's on my For You page all the time, which is what got me into the show. And I'll send you some of her TikToks and we can turn it into the For Our page. <laughs> yeah, I was so interested in what she, because she is reading it for the first time. And every week she brings on a new guest who has read it before to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So she has no idea what's going to happen. But if you're familiar with the story, it is, it becomes very entertaining because you get to hear all the things that she's right and wrong about as you go. Yeah. And I just couldn't restrain myself from listening because I consume podcasts like it's insane the amount of audio that I listen to in a day. And so, yeah, uh, I am on chapter two of Fellowship in my reread and I am halfway through Two Towers in my podcast <laughs> listening. <laughs> And I genuinely feel like it is only a matter of time now before I start my own Lord of the Rings podcast. Because I've noticed this is a thing that happens. Like, I get into a thing and I start a podcast about it now. Uh, did I get Did I get to tell you that I got to see a friend recently and him and I just happened to stumble upon Fast and the Furious uh, movies together talking about them. And I didn't realize just the passion that he has for them. And he's like, all right, do you want to hear my theory about what the next three movies are going to look like? Kelly, you have to start a Fast and the Furious show. And that's what, yes, that's, that's what I came to. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Because you had said, you're like, Kelly, if you're starting a Fast and the Furious podcast, like you have to do the editing. I'm not doing this. <laughs> and I just... Simply from hearing my friend Steve's opinions on what the Fast and the Furious franchise could and should be like going forward, I think I might need to do it. I might need to make you watch them so we can go through it and definitely bring him in for uh, the expert opinion on many of these things. So I, yeah, yeah. So now you've got me thinking, oh, God. I gotta start another podcast. Well, I'll have to teach you how to edit. I know. I know. I haven't done I haven't done audio editing since college. Uh it's not too difficult. It just takes a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at least like it, I figure with if I if I do the Fast and the Furious one, I will spread it out a bit further because the movies, there is a lot going on. Um so, yeah. And the trailer for Nine came out recently. and I heard I have not watched it, but I also have only seen the first Fast and the Furious movie. Ah, okay. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll fix that. <laughs> I got you to watch Avatar, didn't I? You did. You did. <laughs> if it takes me another 10 years to get you to watch the Fast and the Furious franchise, I'll do it. You need to watch The Clone Wars, though, so that you can listen to my Clone Wars show. Yes. Which is actually in development right now. 
<laughs> we've already recorded the first episode and we have the second scheduled and it should be coming out in because i don't know when this episode's coming out so i'm not going to say um but and it's yeah. specifically about clone wars it, it's not, okay so it's a star wars podcast we're starting with watching the clone wars okay but it's not like i mean we might do episodes where we talk about other things i don't know we don't want to shoehorn ourselves it's um it's me and my friend logan and we're both really big fans of the Star Wars animated series and the books. So we might end up doing book episodes. We're just doing a Star Wars show. We're yeah. just doing a Star Wars show and we're starting with the Clone Wars. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Coming soon to a podcast player near you. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then... Everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello, and welcome to The Pie Show with your hosts, I'm Colton. And I'm Callie. And this week, we are talking about Book 2, Chapter 8, The Chase. I love this episode so much. I forgot this episode was this early in Book 2, and it's one of my favorite episodes. One of, and I'll talk about it more later, but one of the best fight scenes, in my opinion. Oh, the best fight scene. I absolutely love it. Yeah. 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 One of the best fight scenes. I'm realizing these past several episodes, I think book two is my favorite book. Interesting. Okay. I might amend that when we get to book three. Yeah. But this is just, this whole season is just all gas, no breaks. It's so funny because I think in an earlier episode, you said that book three was your favorite and that book two, you kind of slogged through. Yeah. And and you, you weren't Sometimes as big I on say book things. two. <laughs> And they're wrong. <laughs> well, so long as you can acknowledge that. Although sometimes I'm right, and you admit it. Yes. In this episode, as the kids are pursued relentlessly by a mysterious machine, their exhaustion puts them at each other's throats. I mean, that's a way to say it. It is such an intensity, this episode, that it really ramps everything up. So I put the note deeper in the show notes, but I feel like the danger this episode is heightened. Yes. It feels more real. Yeah, it feels more real. And there is, it's an element that we haven't been dealing with as much lately, which is going to be more prevalent, which is the industrialization of this war. I thought you were going to say the the Fire Nation and Kelly, we've been dealing with the Fire Nation since the very beginning. But these new war machines and weapons. Yeah. And this is very scary, truly scary and otherworldly for people who are, you know, in touch with nature and you know have have not seen things on this scale before and we got a touch of it at northern air temple and seeing the tanks and what the balloons were going to be like but we're just now seeing these inventions that the mechanist came up with and how the fire nation is going to use them we saw a bit in uh 
We saw a bit in Omashu, but... And a bit in Siege of the North. And a bit of Siege of the North, but now it's going to be even bigger, even badder. They're really heightening the intensity. Yeah, and I think, you know, the difference here between some of the earlier things that we've seen is, I I don't know about you, but uh, a field full of tanks. Mm Mm-hmm feel like that looks intimidating that looks impressive but it's visual it makes the stakes higher but it's visual noise this is a single machine in an endless relentless pursuit it's personal yes it's personally terrifying in a way that a battlefield full of tanks to me just isn't this episode reminds me a lot of james and the giant peach (laughs) (laughs) with the aunts and they're chasing him and no matter where he goes, no matter, like, you're like, how did they find him there? That is what I felt this episode. And, like, that that fear of, you know, uh, being chased like that. And it, it carries. It carries really well. And I feel like it really resonates when you're a kid and when you're an adult. Something I want to mention before we get into this episode that I didn't have in the notes is um, we've talked about directors before. And did you recognize the director on this? To be perfectly honest, as soon as the credits hit, I turned off the TV. Okay. I didn't. Who directed this episode? Giancarlo Volpe. Ooh, ooh, The creator of Dragon Prince. Ooh, yes, yes, yes. So he directed this episode. Best friends with Dave Filoni. Mm-hmm. This is this is why when <laughs> when you got me to watch Dragon Prince, I was like, I know that name. I know that name. And do you want to hear some of the episodes that he's directed? So you can yeah, kind of put it together. All right. So we have Warriors of Kyoshi, Winter Solstice Part Two, Avatar Roku, The Great Divide, Bato of the Water Tribe, The Waterbending Master, The Avatar State, The Swamp, and The Chase. There are more after this, um, but I feel like it's not... Personally, I feel like it's not really until maybe the swamp and the chase that I start to get his his message and see how he shapes episodes. The other ones kind of run the gambit, if that makes sense. See, it's funny because as you're reading that list, all I could think was, you know, as much as Lauren McMullen is the director for the episodes that really speak to me, it sounds like Giancarlo Volpe is the director for the episodes that really speak to you. I'm actually, okay, so I'm now going to read you some more that are coming up. Um, The Library, The Drill, Sokka's Master, I'm skipping a few, but Sokka's Master, uh, The Firebending Masters, The Ember Island Players. So maybe also a writer on one of the tales of Ba Sing Se. So you know that whole... It's like an internet meme that goes around every now and then where you take a franchise and like you break up the franchise into different subgroups and you put each subgroup at like a cartoon cafeteria table. And then you ask yes. someone, which table are you sitting in? And it, you're supposed to like divide it up to make it really hard to choose <laughs> yes. where someone's going to sit. Yeah, you're sitting at John Carlos table and I'm sitting at Lauren's table. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing right now. It's maybe, maybe. It's not everything that you love, but it's definitely like I mean, 80%. I mean, the great divide is on here. <laughs> like I said, it is everything that you love and nothing but things you love. 
And I wasn't a huge fan of Bato of the Water Tribe, but the the ones coming up, his season two ones are bangers. And so I am I am here for it. And so I think that's what'll be really interesting, calling out which directors are working on what. See what I think you need to do now is you need to like take your deeper understanding of him as a director and go back and watch his episodes that you didn't really, you know, you weren't as enthusiastic about and see if maybe you can find some of his style in those episodes and that's the thing that, you know. Yeah. And I think but I think what's interesting is that like I didn't feel that I caught his style until like now. Right, but I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's there. So you're right. I, I will have to go back and see, all right, what where where are the elements that he brings? What what does he bring to the table in this episode that no one else but him could? Right. And I know you like next time you need you want to go watch Avatar and you're not watching for the show, because I know I know you watch Avatar when you're not watching for our show. I, no. I actually I am very strict about that. I am only allowing myself to rewatch like w- with this podcast. Really? Yes. I'm pretty sure you've mentioned offhand that like you, so I'll read you'll the go books? back and you'll watch episodes that we've already discussed. Oh, I can only watch. I can only watch up until what right, we've right. Yeah, yeah. I'm only watch because I'm only watching as we watch, and like I'm not mm. going to watch a random episode until we're through. I actually, I don't know. I no, I haven't gone back. Like unless it's a specific thing I was looking for, I have not rewatched uh, prior episodes. Well, I think you just signed yourself up to randomly rewatch The Great Divide again. No, I knew I was going to do a rewatch <laughs> after this podcast, and I'm no, I think during this podcast you have to do a great divide rewatch we'll see yeah so uh i'm really excited to be catching these names and seeing how they shape things going forward the world of avatar yeah want to talk about the recap a little let's talk about the recap uh just characters characters this recap it's just been nothing but character deep dive episodes the past couple of weeks I really love that we've now narrowed down this is the small elite team mm. that Azula has. Like, we, we kind of did the building, and Omashu was their first experience that we get to see them working as a team. But they decided at the end of that episode that their new mission is going to be going after the Avatar. And this is the first episode where we're going to get to see ha- the advantage of having this small elite team. Especially the contrast that Zuko had a whole ship. Like, he had, he did have resources. It wasn't just him and Iroh. And it was a tiny ship. It was a tiny ship, but he had a crew. It was a tiny crew. It was was enough to have a band and extras. The band had, like, three players. It's it's still enough. It was a trio. It was a Sungi quartet. (laughs) Without the Sungi. (laughs) Speaking speaking of uh, music... What is this music that we're listening to in the intro? What are these drums? So I just had to re-listen to those drums because I didn't catch it. Those are not soccer drums. All right. So they're not soccer drums. What are these drums? Just drums. It's just like my initial thinking is like the drums of war. And then my second thinking is very like, uh, you know, that scene in Fellowship of the Ring where we're establishing that Saruman has become evil and now he has a mind of metal and wheels and there's like a bunch of clanging and banging sounds in the percussion section and the horns come in big and deep because it's like this it's this evil dark industrial sound that's 
supposed to be unnatural so this and is, counter this to everything. This is the this dark is like, industrial sound yeah, this is the mind this of metal and wheels entering the natural world, destroying all in its wake. Mm. Dun, 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 dun. It also sounds like running. Yeah, or like an engine. Yeah, this is very much, you know, the... Uh, John Henry versus the machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but John Henry had a good night's rest. He did. He did. Unlike everyone else here. And the animation does such a good job of making them look tired. It makes me tired. I saw my own bags under the eyes on everyone. <laughs> and after the year we've had, like, I get it. The <laughs> gang is valid. Just need a nap. I do one more thing on the recap. Yeah. Um, Because I I didn't notice it watching the recap itself. But, you know, thinking about the recap for the show, I do really like that Zuko and Toph are kind of juxtaposed and played against each other Mm. in the recap because it's making me realize I didn't realize the first time I watched the show just how much the two of them are on parallel journeys. Yeah. They're both children of extreme privilege in their own ways that have very toxic relationships with parental figures that are turning away from that and abandoning that life and neither of them really know at this point what it is that they want or what comes next for them the only thing they know is they want to choose their own journey going forward yeah and they know what they don't want Mm -hmm. and it's finding their place in the world and they're both kind of getting battered around by it (laughs) and they're both really angry about where they are yeah yeah There are a lot of similarities between the two of them that I think you and I are going to notice a bit more going forward. Uh, I definitely can tell you that I have noticed almost none of them from my first watch. So (laughs) by all means. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about Toph more because like this is our first time getting time with Toph and the team really. This is... Toph on her own for the first time. It's definitely Toph on her own. She's carrying her own weight. She has never had to work as part of a team. Like, even in the Earth Rumbles, she was always fighting alone. I mean, we talked about in Blind Bandit where she's like, she she refuses the help of Aang and Katara to take on... Or, she refuses help... In taking on the other earthbenders because, you know, I got this. And so I think this is the first time that we're starting to see that it's a little bit more. It's a little bit more than just pride. I think pride is a big element of it, but... I think she just genuinely doesn't know. Like, this is just an experience she doesn't have. She doesn't have it. And... She doesn't have it because her parents never let her have it, but also... When she got out of her parents' purview, she didn't want it because it it was considered, you know, when she was getting help, it was because she was helpless. It wasn't because of like a sense of caring. It wasn't it wasn't because of working together to do something. It was I will do it for you. It didn't involve her. She felt a lack of agency. Yeah. So now she's got full agency. She, why Why should she let anybody help her ever? And why should she help anyone? Yes, because why would anybody want that help? That's the thought process. Any self-respecting person would do it themselves. In her own way, she is doing the most courteous thing she can think of. Mm-hmm. Not making anyone else feel the way her entire world made her feel. She is not a burden. 
She is trying to show she is capable of doing everything for herself. Yeah. While also not making anyone else feel like a burden by doing things for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, This doesn't fly with the team, though. No. <laughs> They've had a good thing going. Well, because it's not teamwork. Yeah. It's it's an every, every person for themselves mentality. And there are teams that operate that way, but this team does not operate that way. And those different mentalities are, in a way, mutually exclusive. This team is very much the, the, the gang before Toph is very complimentary and that they fill each other's, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And now we're throwing in the monkey wrench <laughs> into the into the cogs of yeah. this machine here. Yeah, and I think I think Katara makes an attempt to bring that complimentary aspect in, but uh, she she tries to fill a strength where there isn't a weakness, or fill a weakness where there isn't a strength. I don't know. However, that goes. It doesn't. The the cogs don't quite line up, mm-hmm. and the gears are ground. And I think it's very much the different worldview that kind of clashes it. Because even the environments that both Katara and Toph grew up in, Katara was a part of a village that worked together to collect food, to take care of the children. They worked together to do everything. Toph grew up in privilege. She had servants doing things for her. But when she could get away from that all, she did everything herself. There was there was no example of teamwork for Toph to ever learn it. Yeah. So they butt heads and it gets heated. Who do you side with? Who do I side with? Who do you side with? I was going to ask you who do you think is right, but I think you think that neither of them is right. So who do you side with? Who do I side with? All right. Give me a second. Hold on. Because I want to try and give you an answer instead of just saying, let me walk you through my thought process, which is what I do sometimes. You can walk (laughs) me through the thought process. It's okay. I I like when you take me on those little journeys. It's a life-changing field trip. All right. You're going to get a life-changing field trip with Kelly here. So I can very much see Katara's side because everything that she's done so far has worked. It's worked. Their system has worked and kept them safe and kept them moving. So her trying to reach out and integrate Toph into the group makes sense. However, there is, however, I think both Toph and Katara come to this with different expectations of how things are going to go. And I think it's that difference of expectations that and that lack of communication that causes a bit a bit of this rift in a way, and that Katara thinks Toph is here to become a part of Team Avatar. Toph thinks she is here to teach Aang how to earthbend. And if that's the case, Toph is doing everything right. She keeps to herself and she'll teach him when it's time to teach him. She's just along for the ride. But if she's truly a part of Team Avatar, the whole aspect of it, for Katara, that means you're involved in collecting food, keeping watch, setting up camp. There's a lot more involved there. And I think when Katara signed on to be a waterbending master, she knew that's what she wanted from this experience was to create this team and create this family. And Toph has no experience with <laughs> no experience with teamwork, nor great experiences with family. So why should she meet that expectation? So yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm lying on that. But uh You didn't decide with anybody. I didn't I 
I think I think of the expectations, I think I side with Katara's because there is a lot more involved than just teaching Aang to Earthbend. They are on a mission to stop this war and teaching Aang to Earthbend, yes, is one of the aspects of saving the world, like of stopping the Fire Nation, of stopping the war, of stopping Ozai, everything. It's a it's a very important part, but there are other details that are involved. You can't teach him to earthbend if you don't have the time because you're running from somebody. You can't teach him to earthbend if you guys don't have food to have the energy to earthbend. Like maybe you took care of yourself there. But if Aang and the group are struggling to find food and you only brought enough for yourself, he's never going to be able to learn how to earthbend. So Toph is very tunnel vision on what her role is. And she doesn't have the experience to understand that there is a lot more that goes into teaching. And even she doesn't have the experience of having worked with a teacher uh, to to be able to emulate that in a way. Her teachers were the badger moles or you know, the shady guy her parents hired who didn't treat her as a person. Who arguably wasn't that great a teacher. Wasn't that great a teacher. So she doesn't even have any good examples of teachers because, you know, I mean, in our world, like teachers, you know, they they make the classroom a welcoming environment. They, you know, and and maybe some teachers don't, but like most teachers do, like kids need to have nutrition to be able to learn. They, you know... There's a lot of elements that go into being a teacher and Toph isn't there yet. She's not there yet and she'll find her way. And there, like you can be, you can have tough love and be a tough love teacher. But if basic needs are not being met for your students, they're never going to learn. I'd argue if basic needs aren't being met, it's not tough love. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm saying like whatever style you come at for teaching, if basic needs of the student aren't being met, they're never going to learn. So you have to think outside of just the pure instruction. And that's where I think I side with Katara. I like that. And I can honestly say I'm a little bit surprised. Yeah, yeah. I surprised myself on that one. Another thing about Toph and teamwork is that Toph does not consider non-benders a threat. She makes a point of saying, all right, it's two on three. And Sokka's like, I'm here. And she like, it's three on three. And she's like, what? Which is funny because by Toph's counting method, it's three on one. It's three plus Sokka on one plus May and Tylee. Yeah. She, well, she doesn't know that May and Tylee aren't writers. Right. But, you know, that was the first thing in my head. It's like, well, it's not three on three. It's three on one, by the way. You count it. Yep. Yep. You just don't know that you're counting it that way. Yeah. She doesn't know. She sees three people, you know, like, and the gang's prepping for a fight. She's like, well, they must all be firebenders. Why wouldn't they be? Like, she's only ever fought benders. Yeah. She's never been in a fight with a non-bender. Yeah. As far as we know. True. But, I mean, do you think she got into many fist fights outside the ring? I don't know. Like, her attitude, maybe. Yeah, maybe. That shuts people up. Yeah. But uh, she doesn't consider them a real threat. She doesn't. But- Again, she's invalidating a member of her team, too. But this is something that she needs to learn, and she doesn't have that knowledge yet. I think she learns this episode, just a little bit. I think she learns... It's going to take a while before she takes yeah, off a bit I was more seriously. Say, I think she learns that she's wrong, but I don't think she learns what's right. So, who is chasing Team Avatar? The question... 
Oh, it's those three girls from Omashu. It's those three girls from Omashu. And they're no one else. They're just from Omashu. I love that, like, the little ponytail discussion when they're trying to figure out who uh, who's chasing them. That's when I, like, I realized that they still don't know who Azula is. Like, I forgot that they didn't know who she was and that they don't find out until the end of this episode. I do feel like a, a lesser show would not have taken that care. Mm-hmm. They would have just said, like, oh, it's Azula and her gang. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, the characters don't know. But like, yeah, I, I really appreciate the fact that they don't know and they don't get to know until they do. I don't think do. they get May's name for quite some time because they get Tylee's name this episode. Yeah. And Azula introduces herself. Mm-hmm. As she do. As she do. Uh, But I don't think May has mentioned her name yet in front of them. Well, you know, she's shy. Well, because I'm thinking, I'm thinking in the future at some point, Sokka references May and he doesn't know he I don't think he knows her name when he says, oh, the mopey girl, <laughs> the mopey girl with the knives. He references her like that. But I don't know if the gang knows her name for quite some time. We'll have to look out for when they could possibly like, learn it because they have I'm no ability to this now. Yeah. Yeah. Because how else would they unless they're, she, her name is being called out in combat or anything like she called out Tylee's. So I do. I, I, can we get into that? fight a little bit yeah let's do okay because like i i really genuinely love how katara knows tylee's moves and mm. like knows to avoid them like it shook her so much to her core and her she points it out taken. to Toph too like yeah. she's like that girl i don't know what she did but she can take bending and that is like genuinely i think that is katara's biggest fear come to life but tylee went to lead with that in the in the little fight and Katara knew it was coming, knew how to counter it. And that kind of threw Tylee for a loop. She's she like, I'd rather- a, That's like, I, I, I would be willing to bet that that is the first time anyone has been able to avoid having their bending taken from her. Since Azula. But yeah. even then, but even then, like, she would try that. <laughs> right. Like, I, I, I'm not convinced that Tylee ever tried to do yeah. that to Azula. Yeah. Um. But I love how Katara is like, no, I'd rather deal with knives. I'd rather (laughs) knives, just throw knives at me. I can't. But that that is Katara's like huge, huge fear. Well, yeah, I mean, bending is the huge part of her identity. Without her bending, she wouldn't be off on this big adventure. I think we talked about it in the waterbending scroll a bit about how much her bending is tied to her identity. It's her connection to her home, her family, Mm -hmm. her mom. Yep. It woke up the avatar. Yep. And brought him back to the world. Yep. So it's it's really interesting to see that is that is her fear. That that is that is more terrifying than any other anything else chasing them. I haven't seen that fear from her with other with other battles that they've gotten into. I don't think she's had that fear with anything. Yeah. Yeah. And Toph kind of shakes it off of like, like, no, that that's not a real thing. And like, it very much is. But Toph also, her combat style is very different. And she usually doesn't have people get too close to her at all. Yeah. Like, she can't allow it for her combat style. Yeah, Katara fights much more close quarters. Mm-hmm. And is comfortable fighting close quarters. Yep. It's it's a little bit more exertion to fight from from a distance for her. Yeah. Well, also because a, a lot of like she relies on the water whip so heavily, and a big component about how she uses it 
is by like making you for like not realize where it is or be able to keep track of it. Mm-hmm. The way she moves it around her opponent's body. And sometimes when it's more of a distance thing, she uh, can overextend herself and she loses control a bit. Yeah. So she is more of a close quarters fighter. So it's it's why Tylee is so scary to her. I, I greatly enjoy how quickly Tylee is able to disarm Sokka. <laughs> and she goes to knock him out by striking his head. And he is he's too hard headed. <laughs> She's and not he looks re- she doesn't know what to do and he looks at her and goes no yep no yep well she <laughs> it was also very much like tis but a scratch <laughs> <laughs> i love when he's he's got he's got no arm and he, he tries to give her a little kick <laughs> <laughs> come over here i'll bite you I'll bite you. Like, I'll bite your kneecaps. If she had been close enough, I think he absolutely would have. Like, yeah. With his noodle arms. With his noodle arms. He would have just slapped him around or hit her with his wolf tail. It's not a ponytail. It's a, it's a war- warrior's wolf tail. Warrior's wolf tail. But I absolutely love that they describe Tylee, May, and Azula as a tank full of dangerous ladies chasing us. You just want to be in a tank full of dangerous ladies chasing someone i just uh, sign me up sign me up to be in that tank also pretty great are they operating like like i, I just need to take a second like are they operating the tank like i, I don't driving? think they're operating the tank if so when the tank stops and the door opens and they come out it's not the first car it's not the second car it's like okay. the third car so they have someone they have a chauffeur. They they have a train engineer. Okay. They probably have a conductor. Because it's not it's a tank, but it's a it's a train tank. It's a trank. It's a trank. Yes. Yeah, they probably ha- they probably have a conductor. And because you need fire bending to move that forward. Yeah, because it's probably a combustion. But you engine. also need someone to steer. Does it steer? I think it just goes straight fast. No, it it has to steer because they are moving like... How would it steer, though? The wheels don't turn. I mean, I guess you could move one set of wheels faster than the other. That's got to be it. Because you need to be able to turn. Yeah, that's got to so be it's it. Just giving po- it's just giving power. The conductor's just giving power. And if it's built on fire-bending engines, then it would probably be relatively easy to have just two engines going simultaneously and you pump more fire into mm-hmm. one to go faster to turn. I think we get turn. into one of the tanks in a few episodes from now and get to see a bit more of the mechanics of it. I don't remember that, but I'm enjoying trying to reverse engineer the tank just from what we've yeah, seen in the three shots. Yeah, but you would have shots. to have Azula on power. Like, if, if it's if it's the three of them, mm-hmm. you'd have to have Azula on power, and then who who's navigating? See, right there, steering? that's proof that it's, it's not just the three of them because there's no way that Azula would put herself in that position. Ah, uh, really? You you don't think so? No, she would command someone to do it. She Because I think if she was keeping if she truly wanted to keep small elite team between the three of them, she has put herself to the back before. Okay. She put herself to the back for May's for May's negotiation in Omashu. She was willing to like she was willing just to be the brute force there. Fair. And the prodigy that she is, I don't think it would be that much energy for her. Okay, I've changed my mind. I don't have a strong enough argument. <laughs> so she would have to be doing the power. Um, I think Tylee Navigator and May Driving. I think I would reverse that. Tylee Driving, May Navigator. 
I think Ty Lee should be driving and May should be navigator, but I think the show would put Ty Lee as navigator mm-hmm. because I think the show would want, like, a writer on the show would want to play into the comedy of Ty Lee navigating by Aura. Like, they'd come to a fork in the road and she'd look at, and they'd be like, you know, which way do we go? And she'd look at one and she'd be like, that one's too yellow. I, I mean, I think in the context of this episode, they're following the trail of Appa's hair. Right. And I think that'd be a pretty easy thing for, I could see yeah. Ty Lee noticing that and going, oh, there. Yeah. Just, I'm, I just, I, I meant more in, in general, like, you know, if you were writing that bit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But now we've got, this is the, this is the new antagonist. This is the new big bad. These three girls. This is the new villain. Yep. Our antagonist is our villain. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you have a note here about Azula. And oh, I can talk about that in the... I want, I want you to talk about it a bit. I want you to just kind of like go on a rant to me. So every once in a while, I just get fixated on people's costumes and styling. And there was something about what the scene in which Azula is finding out which way Aang went versus which way the rest of the group went that I just could not help but notice the details of her costume, of her clothes and what she is wearing. And I'd like you to elaborate on that because I know it's not exactly like bog standard Fire Nation wardrobe, but it's close enough that I never really caught those details. Like I never deep dove into her outfit versus other Fire Nation outfits. Uh, So it is her outfit and styling is very androgynous when she's in the field. Uh, And it's very interesting. It has like the same exaggerated shoulders as the rest of the Fire Nation outfits. Um, But she has these baggy like jogger type pants that make it comfortable for her to be able to move. She has a high collar. And I, you know, especially I noticed that she is covered, you know, from her wrists all the way down and everything and from her neck all the way down. And if you're working with fire, then you definitely want to have protective clothing you know what i mean because yeah, you don't want to get control burned. the fire do you need protective clothing well no i mean i'm saying like you are working with flames on a daily basis like you don't want to get burned and if you and if you're overly exposed you're more prone to that so i started to notice that i started to notice you know the um slits and like the little like skirt type area to it and how it looks, again, very similar to the uh, male outfits as well. It's it's a very androgynous look. And you've got the difference of, you know, Ty Lee, who's wearing very like a tight fitting t- crop top and everything like that. And then you've got May, who has more darker tones and but she has billowy sleeves, which is can be very feminine. There's nothing feminine about Azula's look. There is everything harsh about Azula's look. Even her shoes have like the points to them, but that's the same shoes as every other soldier. So when she comes on the scene, her outfit isn't flashy. So why would the gang expect her to be the crown princess of the Fire Nation? It's not extravagant cloth. It's not brocade. The only thing that really stands out is the little gold piece in her hair. That's the difference there. She doesn't telegraph who she is. Yes. Which, in a way, telegraphs who she is. (laughs) 
Yeah, she's she's on. She can be unassuming whenever she wants to be. Yeah, and blend blend in if she wants to. And so I was just fascinated by all the details that went into her clothing choices and that you could take this like you know super strong princess and she's a princess but that you look at her outfit and you do not think princess you i mean even in zuko's outfits you could see that element of like he's royalty okay fine but you don't see it in hers i look at her and all i think is she's a threat yes She's she's agile with her with her outfit. She's able to move, which when you think of, you know, people of privilege usually are not. uh, I mean, the invention of high heels, like high heels are meant for people not to do things in them. Well, stand around and have your picture painted. Yeah, basically. But they're not function. And Azula's outfit is all function. Even even her hairpiece could be seen as function because it's uh, it's a comb. Keeps her hair back. So it's all function and not cut up in the look of it. Yeah, I got really, really into the details. <laughs> I never put that together on that level. Like it was I it was communicated to me. I understood it. I just never like intelligently thought about it that way. Yeah. I even I just looked at, you know, Zuko's like early, early costume mm-hmm. and like I say costume, like this this is characters clothing. Yeah. Um, costume. I, costume. And he gets he, dressed in wardrobe every day, then he goes to makeup. His uh armor compared to everyone else on the ship has a gold trim, a special gold trim. He has uh, you know, his very specific top knot and the rest of his head is bald. Like he he separates himself from the rest of his crew. Whereas Azula is a bit more down to earth, in my opinion. <laughs> well, she wants to catch you off guard. Yeah, she has some gold. Tr- she, like she has some trim around her neck, but it's not bright gold. It is. It is uh, deeper and more earthy, and matches a bit more with everyone else's. So, and she'll change it up. She'll it's, she'll change it up. But uh, yeah, just really obsessed with her function. <laughs> Alert! Alrighty. So, so like, we're going to talk about Appa first. We got to talk about Appa we first. Talk about this is Appa. like the Appa episode. Yeah. Is okay. So you and I had this conversation in Jet that I'm going to reference, and Appa cannot sleep in the air. And this is why I was wondering how strong the trees were because he slept in trees during this Jet episode. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure it's Jet that the episode that you and I had this battle about yeah, Appa's sleeping so. methods. And I was like, he can't sleep in the tree, like, because how strong are those trees? They'd have to be able to hold up this animal that weighs tons. And you had said, well, what if he's, he might be floating, like he's, he might be flying or hovering. And I'm like, he can't do that. This episode establishes that he cannot fly while he's sleeping. Okay, but maybe he can take some of his weight off the ground. He can't. He starts falling out of the sky. No, 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 no. I understand he cannot fly fly but you know there's a difference between putting all 10 of your tons versus you know well then he would be able to at least like five hover or he'd be in place rather than maybe moving. he can't hover maybe he can't get all 10 because like in order to hover you have to get all 10 tons off the ground maybe he can only get eight tons off the ground so while he's sleeping he's not a 10 ton bison he's a two ton bison but he knows dives i just all the way to the ground. Well, he's still two tons. 
I don't know if we're going to agree on this, but I just wanted to say that this is the episode. This is how you I have to bend over backwards to side. justify using real world physics, a fantasy world. No. <laughs> Just reached the point, Colton. I've just reached the point, Colton. I'm going to say no to that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's fair. You're valid. Can we but talk we about also- how Momo is Sokka's pet because he runs over to Sokka when the tank I love is coming? You're noticing this now in the it's notes. Momo Sokka's pet. <laughs> it's totally there. It's totally true. It's a thing. Yep. Um, yes, absolutely. Brilliant. Momo, valued member of the lookout team. Momo uh, catches the tank before Toph. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's the what big ears you have, Momo. And then we've got new animals. So we have um, a blue jay. And I'm realizing, looking at this blue jay, apparently its first appearance was in Blue Spirit, and I must have missed it. So I apologize for all the animal listeners out there who were like, Kelly, can't believe you didn't notice the blue jay in Blue Spirit. Because I know there are so many of those people who are obsessed with our cute animal words. See, now you have me wondering if there's a larger symbolic reason for the blue jay. Now you're going to have to go back and watch that episode and look for the blue jay. Now I'm going to have to watch all the episodes where I think my backwards reasoning fits and see if there's a blue jay maybe you've just been missing the blue jay this entire time this entire time uh and then we have butterflies uh the ostrich horse never loyal i i just i i don't trust ostrich horses anymore and then the new animal i really love the mongoose lizard also known as a mongoose dragon the big lizard right so when they like go up on the hind legs and they run across the river i was not ready i was not ready for that (laughs) they are tireless trackers and have easy reflexes to dodge they're just unsettling they look like what we think dinosaurs used to look like back when dinosaurs were like all you know slimy so uh they it says that this enormous reptile is a cross between a mongoose and a large-scale green-plumed basilisk lizard And it's actually the green-plumed basilisk has the ability to run short distances atop water. Have you ever seen video footage of it? I think once. It's wild. Is it the same flappy flap thing that they do? Well, because they like, they go up on their hind legs and it's weird. They don't, like you would expect them to move their legs really quickly and they do, but it's not so much a running as it is a stomping Mm. because they turn their, their feet into like these cups. So they're like swimming straight up from the surface of the water. Ooh, okay. Yeah. That's really cool. It's, it's wild. I love how unsettling these things are, and that's why they're getting my cute animal award. I mean, that that's definitely a choice. Uh, I'm going to give it to Appa because he got a bath, he and a he bath. just looked so happy to get his bath. Also, I like how it's springtime in the show, and like it's springtime for us. Like That makes me like, very happy. Yes. We are in synchronicity with the show. <laughs> exactly, and that shedding and ugh. Yeah, I'm feeling that. Yep. I... I Got my first haircut since August mm-hmm. a little bit ago. So, like, I feel you, Appa. <laughs> I feel you. I have a new coat myself. So this episode has two of my favorite scenes of the entire show. Let's talk about one of them. Okay. Tea time with Iroh. Tea time with Iroh. I love this scene. I... This scene has two of my favorite quotes in it, um, and I completely forgot they were in this scene and this episode. Ooh, okay. Um, 
because I normally hear them as a little bit of pulling back the lid. When I put the, when I listen back to the, the show after the editing is done to put the show notes together, I normally have on in the background this very specific lo-fi with Uncle Iroh quotes music going in the background. And it has a bunch of like, you know, Iroh sound bites from the show. And two of them are from this. One of them is, you know, sharing tea with a fascinating stranger is one of life's greatest pleasures. And the other one is there's nothing wrong with letting people who love you help you. Mm. So I'm listening to these quotes almost every week. And it was one of those moments, like, you know, when you're watching a movie that you've seen a thousand times, but not in a while. And like, there's the scene that's become the meme. Yes. It was that feeling. <laughs> it was like, oh, I said the thing. And then two seconds later, I oh, said the other thing. <laughs> I absolutely love there is nothing wrong with letting people who love you help you. And what an amazing lesson. And I know I've been in the position where I've been tough saying I can take care of myself by myself. You've said that to me. Yeah, I have. <laughs> and I had to learn. I had to learn sometimes the hard way that there is nothing wrong with letting people who love you help you. And it has stuck with me. And I think it's also really interesting because I'll share some of my life experience on this is that learning that lesson was learning it when I was, de when I was dealing with uh, understanding my disability. And I had always been an I can take care of myself by myself person. And I wanted to continue it no matter what, no matter what circumstances changed it at all. That's what I was going to be. And it was really hard to let people in and let go of some of that. And this scene really struck a chord with me like then, now everywhere in between. Um, and it's a great reminder for me. I find that uh, there is nothing wrong with letting people who love you help you and that it's how you grow and that it's not, you can be independent, but also be a part of a team and that that teamwork will help you grow independently. It's, it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. I, I really love just the idea that, you know, Iroh is following Zuko around, but from a great enough distance that Zuko has no idea. <laughs> just because like that, that whole, you know, he's lost and he thinks he doesn't need me, but I'll be there when he does. And I'm going to do what I have to, to make sure that I can be like, it's just, it's really sweet and, and touching. It just popped into my head thinking of what what if Katara was able to take that perspective for Toph? And I think at some point she'll kind of get there, mm. but she's not able to be there yet because, I mean, she's still a kid and she's still growing too. Um, but this is something that Toph needs to understand and Toph needs in her life. That is, it's a need for Toph that's not being met. Um, it's a need that Toph doesn't even know she needs. Uh, but I think it's a role that Katara, even though her and Toph butt heads, Katara will end up filling. Yeah. I think this is just such a such an important scene for both Toph and Iroh mm -hmm. because, you know, Toph really needs to be taught this lesson that Iroh is in the middle of teaching Zuko. Mm -hmm. And she's at a point where I think she's ready to learn that lesson a bit more directly. I think she has to learn it directly. She doesn't do indirect. We've, le right. we've learned yeah. that so far. Everything she does is head on direct. But it has to come from Iroh because it has to come from an outsider. Mm-hmm. 
from someone she's not seeing as a threat, as yeah. an antagonist. Yeah. And I think at the same time, you know, we go, we, we talk a lot about, you know, Iroh's wisdom and, and his willingness to stay by Zuko. But I do think he genuinely needs like the win of getting through to someone on this lesson. I think he also needs Toph's validation that what he's doing is right for his nephew, because that's what she gives to him. Like this is, this is very much a um, reciprocal tea time wisdom yeah. type thing that uh, Toph can validate for Iroh that, you know, she, she talks about, you know, I think your nephew's very lucky to have you. Like, because, of course, Iroh could doubt. Like, and I feel I, I think I can feel Iroh doubting, like, am I doing the right thing? Like, I know he's lost. And I, I'm waiting for him to come back to the court, the correct course. But you can feel Iroh start to doubt a little. Am, am I doing this right? And Toph is there to say, yeah, no, you're, you sound like a great uncle. Your nephew is lucky to have you. And that makes him more resolved in sticking by and being ready for Zuko when Zuko's ready. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, I always considered, I think it's easy to consider Iroh as like this pinnacle of wisdom because that's his role in the show. Yeah, but he's also a human being and he's going to doubt and he's going to. Yeah, no, and and that's kind of what I'm saying because we know he has this darker past. He did some questionable things while at war. He was known as the Dragon of the West. Like, guy's got a past. And I think. I think he views his relationship with Zuko as a way to maybe not undo some of what he's done, but to do something good. Atone. Yeah. To atone. Yeah. To the universe in a way. And I think he knows what the right lessons to teach are, but I don't know if he always knows the right, regardless of whether or not he knows the right way, I don't think he believes he knows the right way. Yeah. Or how to to get through to him. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's Iroh's personal struggle is is not what do i teach it's how do i teach and i do i i i was struck by iroh's description of zuko in this scene because so this only this this observation can only happen because of this show because i am forced to when i edit this show listen over and over and over again to the same handful of audio clips that i have at my disposal to like cut in as transition music and i noticed that iro echoes the traveling band Ooh, what what? Even if you're lost, you can't lose the one the love because it's in your heart. Oh no, Colton. Oh no. Even if you're lost, you can't lose the love because it's in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let that sink in. Oh, no. Well, that hurts. I am so sad that Iroh doesn't get to meet the band. I wouldn't rule that out, actually. I'm sure it's a traveling band. (laughs) I'm so sad we don't get to see Iroh meet the band. Okay, yeah, because it's a traveling band and it's canon that it's Suki's favorite band. Okay, so Iroh probably sees the band. (laughs) So I will say that. But I want to see Iroh see the band. I want to see mm. Iroh yeah, and no, Chong fair. have tea together. That's fair. Oh, they are definitely playing the tea house. Like, if this was a 90s sitcom, 
you know, Ira would have the tea house and of course it'd be one of the special guest stars. You know how they always like in those like early to late nineties, early two thousands, one of the characters inevitably bought a coffee shop or Mm -hmm. a bar or a club. And then they'd have their special guest star or like, you know, in Buffy they'd have, they're like, Oh, we're over here. They'd have the, someone's in a band yeah, it'd be Iroh's tea shop, and it'd be various poets and musicians. Because and, you yeah. know they would sit down and, like, they would think they were starting a conversation that was only going to be a little bit. But then, like, they have some tea, and they write a couple songs together. And the Pai Show board comes out, and Iroh teaches Chong how to play Pai Show. Oh, Chong knows how to play Pai Show. I don't think Chong knows how to play Pai Show, but I think he's a natural and he whoops Iroh the first game. I think he knows how to play Pie Show, but only by his Pie Show rules because there are various <laughs> Pie Show rules and rule sets. We'll get into that in Korra. But <laughs> so I I want to go back to so Iroh's description of Zuko and the music connection. Holy crap. Um <laughs> it's brilliant. But also this description that Iroh gives of Zuko is Toph's first true impression of who Zuko is that that's what she that's what she learns about him she there's like a brief mention earlier of like you know of oh yeah we have this one dude who chases us one dude with a ponytail who chases us around mm-hmm. but it's kind of brushed over because then they're still trying to figure out who's in the tank they're like oh what about the three girls but this is Toph's first understanding of who Zuko is. The group didn't say like all the terrible things he's done. Like they haven't given context for her. Outside of him being a crazy guy with a ponytail that chases them around that they haven't seen since the Siege of the North. Yeah, but even then, like she's like, okay, you got chased. Like, what did he do to you? Yeah. You know? So, but this is her first impression of Zuko. I think it's really interesting to have her have this pure impression of Zuko that is outside of the reach of the group. Mm. She is she is someone who, you know, take care of herself by herself. She is going to form her own opinions for herself. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. And I think she's going to empathize with him. She's going to be able to a lot better because I have knowledge that you don't. Not that I'm going to share it, not that I'm going to care to share it, but I know what's right. Yeah. She has a very strong sense to her of what is right and wrong. And I think I think what Tea Time with Toph and Iroh shows is that she's got good instincts because she after she knocks over Iroh, she chooses to sit and have tea with him. She doesn't know who this man is, but she she trusts enough that she can sit and have this conversation. And I think it shows, you know, going forward way down the line, Toph kind of fills an Iroh role for other characters in the future. Mm. So it's really cool to set this up now. I want to grab onto your whole like Toph trusting Iroh thing because mm-hmm. on top of, you know, trusting him to sit down and have tea with him, she also, he's the first character that she takes at their word that I, I'm not trying to condescend to you or take your agency by doing this thing for you. I'm just doing this nice thing for you because I want to because it's nice. But he's blunt and he's blunt about it. Right. He says why he's doing it, whereas Katara hasn't been very clear to her. Right. But like Katara aside, this is the first like this is probably the first person in her life that she's trusting at their word, their motivations for helping her. He's he's leveling with her. He's being he's being very on the level with her. Yeah. 
and she's trusting him to do that. Like that that's in earnest. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's so in earnest though, because she was able to like disarm him pretty quick to begin with. Like she's like, and I got this. Trouble comes. I got this. What's the worst that this old man could do to me? Like, Ooh, who do you she's think would win it. in that fight? Huh? Who do you think would win in that fight? Tough. I'm real quick on that. <laughs> real quick on that. You didn't even. You almost didn't let me finish. Yeah. No. You can't unroot her. So last week, Zuko alone, we talked about the Western feel and aspect. And it has carried into this episode. They should have just played the theme from the good, the bad, and the ugly because it was <laughs> on the nose so I much. I loved it with the ghost town. Oh, I loved it so much. The ghost town, the three-person standoff. Yup, yup. The ghost town actually, I think it has, the town has a name as well. And in some of the extras, so the town's name is called Tuzin, and it was uh, a mining town. And after all the minerals were gone, people literally left overnight. That's, There's no, yeah, that, that's no use. What, that's a ghost town. That's a ghost town. That's how it Classic, happened. Because we've now, we've got Aang waiting and the sun coming down, and we're going to have the sundown showdown. Okay, I love the sunset here because this episode, I think more than most, is really good about the progression of time. Yes, that passage of time is so strong. The day-night cycle in this episode is so strong. Mm -hmm. And the episode, like the big climax happens at sundown and just, can, can, can you permit me a minor Star Wars rant? Permitted. Okay. So generally speaking, in Star Wars movies, the passage of time is nebulous at best. We never really have a strong idea of how long the movies take place over, with one exception, Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith takes place over a period of, I believe it's three and a half days. And we know this because at pretty much all points in the movie, someone, one of the point of view characters is on the planet Coruscant, the galactic capital. And we are in touch with the Coruscant day-night cycle throughout the entire movie because the way the movie happens, there are a handful of nighttime scenes in the beginning to establish the length of time the movie takes place. But the major events of the movie all happen on the same day. And you follow Anakin's fall to the dark side literally as night falls on the Republic. And he goes full on. He makes the decision to go evil at sunset. And as night falls, so does he. <laughs> all I could think while watching this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and... Here, I'm think it's funny because I'm thinking from Aang's perspective, which is he has been running and we, we've seen the passage of days of which he is not getting sleep. So another sunset brings another sleepless night as he's preparing for this battle. He is exhausted. But not only that, what happens when the sun sets? Everything shifts to hues of red and orange. Oh, yeah. The colors the world everywhere. world is engulfed in fire yep as fire surrounds him yep there is no escape mm -hmm. but he leads himself to a place of no escape he is confronting this he is stopping it head on he stops in the middle of town and says i'll wait they'll come and i'll wait and i'll be here but he is done running from sleepless nights all of it so good love it all <laughs> also like the other aspect of, of this Western, of the introducing of this uh, showdown between the three of them and building the triangle and building the tension, the standoff, 
Mm-hmm. And Azula's impression of Zuko in the original standoff of like, you don't know who I am? And she's like, do you not recognize the family resemblance? And she tries to like lighten the mood. It feels very, um, oh, which movie is it? Javier Bardem plays. It's it's a Western. It's not. Oh, No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men. And he's unsettling. And there's something about Azula's introduction and Azula's smile and nature going into this that brings that unsettling invader into this ghost town versus, you know, a wholesome egg who just wants a nap. Mm. I mean, I think the main problem is that Aang had no idea who he was up against. He had no idea who was following him, who he would have to fight in the end. He thought he he's like, I can take anybody. However, his fights with Azula have been close, real tight. And so I think she was at every advantage. And for Aang, he was at every disadvantage, which is what makes the introduction of Zuko into this whole standoff so interesting and game-changing. Can we get into the battle at the end? This standoff, okay, Azula Mm -hmm. is going after both of them. Yes. I can't tell who her primary target is Mm -hmm. because she's in the standoff tracking both of them. Zuko is tracking Azula. Is he? He he puts his eyes on Aang to see if Aang, like what Aang is going to do. But the second he realizes that Aang doesn't know what to do, Mm -hmm. all of his focus is on Azula. Mm. Because Azula's going to take Aang from him. He knows he can't trust her. He knows that's like, he can go toe-to-toe with Aang. I think, like, Azula's a concern for him. Yeah, if he's getting out of there alive, yeah, he's got to make Azula his number one Aang issue. Aang has no idea what to do. <laughs> he's like, did I just walk into the middle of something by standing here? Mm-hmm. Like, how did I get in the middle? He's like, Zuzu? What is Zuzu? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I love he gets to laugh at that. He's like, oh man, I get to look because he gets to, I mean, it's nothing like having someone that like you don't like and then someone that they don't like calls them out on something or does something bad and you're like, nice. Yeah. And that's exactly what, like, it's such a like satisfying feeling that Aang gets to have. He's like, I don't get many wins here, but I'm going to take this one, Zuzu. And I love that it's Aang that gets that though, that gets that satisfaction because I feel like Katara would ignore it and Sokka would absorb it far too much. And that would <laughs> like it it would be the only part of that whole conversation that Sokka paid attention to. And he'd still be talking about it during the fight. Oh, the whole after time. After the fight. Mm-hmm. The next episode. The, the next showdown. The end of the episode would be them flying off into the sun flying off into the night and <laughs> Zuzu. That that would be it. Yep. So it's perfect that Aang, in his sleep deprivation, is the one who gets that little win. But this is one of my favorite battles of all time. Sometimes I will go back and watch this episode just for this battle. Just from the, you know, just fr- I'll, I'll watch it from the, I like the Katara and Tylee one, and I'll watch from there to the end. Mm. Yeah, this is one of my favorite battles, too. I just, oh. the dynamics of it are all so good. The fight choreography mm-hmm. and how, uh, I, I, you know, I think in terms of the stage and how, you know, when you're on stage, you're always building these triangles. 
on stage in these different uh, angles. And you get to watch the colors move in these triangles uh, with this fight choreography. But before we get into a little more of the fight choreography and the details there, one more thing about the standoff is that the Soongi horn plays the blue spirit theme as Zuko has to make his decision of where to strike. And as he changes his stance. He goes from his traditional, like, ready-to-showdown stance to one we haven't really seen a whole lot before and commits against Azula. Mm. Beautiful moment. He has to make a choice. Yeah. And it's, it's, I really love that we get the traveling of Azula to where she's coming to. We get the traveling of Aang to where he's coming to. But we were only left with what Zuko had in Zuko alone. Otherwise, he just shows up in this ghost town right here, right now. But it doesn't feel out of nowhere, if that makes sense. Feels like it was just the next stop on his journey. It just feels so natural. Yeah. I do think that Iroh being a little bit behind him makes it feel that way. Because like, we're told that Iroh is following him, and then he's just a bit ahead of Iroh. But um, then we get into the fight, the fight. And there was this beautiful moment that I managed to pause at. Well, I managed to get my husband to pause <laughs> while I was writing my notes. <laughs> I'll give him that credit. Um, where Azula and Zuko's flames go up against each other. And she is engulfed in the blue light. And mm. he is engulfed in the red light. Yes. And it's this wall of the blue V red. And we haven't talked about our colors in a while. We haven't. So I wanted to talk about them a little. And I wanted to get your take on Azula has blue flames. We've been talking about blue in context of this is good, righteous light. And and then Azula comes in. What are your what are your thoughts on this? Uh Azula messes this up for me. <laughs> I actually, I was reading a bit about this in the Art of Avatar book, and gotta say, I'm a little frustrated because the the answer in that book to this is is very utilitarian, and it's basically like, well, we wanted Azula's firebending to stand out, mm. and like I get it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it is it's it's a bit of a frustration. I I think. It reads to me as this is more powerful firebending because, mm. like you know, a blue flame is hotter than a than a red or an orange flame. Yeah. Um. So, like, my brain equates that with like, oh, she's just like she's do her strike is going to be more she runs powerful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her strike is going to be more powerful. It's going to be hotter. Um. But as far as like from a from a more symbolic or like metatextual point, I don't know. I'm still working on that. I think what I'm kind of starting to tinker with is the idea that she, it's not necessarily what is light and right, but she has a righteousness in her strike. She has, Mm. for someone who has no sense of right or wrong, like for the kind of, well, the sociopath that she is, she's always right. She's always on the good side. She is the good side. And while villains may justify that, they do have that sense of, I am killing people that is bad. Like, they do have that sense to them. Zhao knew what he was. You know, even Zuko knows what he is. Ozai knows what he is. But Azula is a little out of place in the world and doesn't see the world as everyone else does. She has a difficult time connecting with people. She's great at manipulating. She's very charming, but she has a difficult time connecting with people and 
and following what other people may have a sense of right or wrong. So I'm tinkering with that, that that's why her flames can be blue, not just because of power and prodigy and stuff. But if we're thinking in terms of this color theory of, you know, good versus evil, she doesn't have that that uh, that context. She doesn't have that codifying. Mm. I want to chew on that. That's that's interesting. I, I want to. Yeah, I, I want to look for that going forward and, and see how that yeah. plays around with my own thoughts. That's why, like I said, I I'm wanted still to put that out it. there for you. Of yeah. Like, because I, I knew Azula ruins Azula. You're like, Azula messes this up. Yeah, I'm, I'm she does. I'm going to come back to you in a couple of weeks and I'm either going to wholeheartedly agree with you or I'm going to rip it to shreds. One of the two. Amazing. Let's find out which I'm not. I'm not married to either. So <laughs> great. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> There was this fun little moment in in the battle where like Aang goes into a house and does the air scooter and like is floating over a pit in the house because the you know, he goes in the second floor and the second floor wasn't there anymore so it just drops to the first. Azula runs in and almost falls and tears on the edge you know wailing her wailing flailing her arms you know in a big circle like a cartoon character she is for a little bit catching herself. And stepping to the side. And as she steps to the side, Zuko runs headfirst. <laughs> realizes, gets over the pit in de- midair before he realizes that there's no floor. And once he realizes there's no floor, he falls. It's like the most Looney Tunes scene in the middle of this serious battle. But like, I think there's, I think it is surprisingly illuminating because Zuko just charges in head first, head down, makes mistakes falls in the pit, but because he's kind of taken out of the fight for that little bit, he kind of has a bit of safety from Azula's strikes that he otherwise would be vulnerable to. Meanwhile, Azula spends a significant portion of time teetering on the edge, ready to fall. All it would take is the slightest little push, and she would completely lose control. And the only reason that doesn't happen is because Aang is not the one to push her. Mm Mm-hmm. She also, she has this moment of slight panic and then she kind of recalibrates and uses her momentum to move herself to the side. It is very kind of use your opponent's strength against them. She's using her own momentum to get to a place of safety. She loses control for a second and then she is able to gain control through her lack of control. You're right. Very illuminating. Losing control like that? That's her worst fear. We're seeing we're seeing some of the worst fears of our ladies of Avatar in this episode. Yeah, exciting. I know, I know, I know you want to go off about Katara via Zula. Not not even that much. Um <laughs> I so even even more into this battle, we now have a little bit of Katara versus Azula, and I just we don't get enough. We don't get enough, in my opinion. And I think because I've also I I, t- I talked about this earlier on about how Katara versus Azula is a more interesting battle to me than Azula versus Aang and how I see this as kind of the parallel because Zuko made the comparison early on that Aang is very much like Azula that they both are you know are born lucky that they have such great natural talent and that he has to work hard at everything to get there and I see in comparison to Zuko Katara who, you know, Katara and Zuko were both born with, they do have some, you know, just great, great gifts. However, it takes more time and hard work to hone that skill. And the two of them 
are some of the hardest workers on the team. Like they're they're the hardest, like they work every day to improve. They do not let up. Episode one, they're both struggling with the basics. Yep. And so I find the fights between, you know, between Zuko and Aang are fascinating because again, they're fighting different styles. One is again, natural instincts and the other is learned. And you're seeing the same with Katara and Azula. Azula is all these natural instincts of where to move, how to go versus Katara's intense study. And you know Katara after each fight is going, okay, well, this maneuver didn't work. How can I change the water whip to work better in my control? How can I do this? She's analyzing in a way that someone like Azula and Aang would not Yeah, because it just comes natural. So some of my favorite battles are getting to see that natural prodigy talent versus that hard work, uh, work ethic. I and think so, it's also really interesting just to show how far Katara's come. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Katara is Aang's waterbending master, but we don't see a ton of that education. Mm-hmm. We kind of just are told Katara is Aang's waterbending master, and now suddenly Aang can waterbend a whole lot better, and that's that. I mean, we get some of the education earlier on. Yeah, but, but when we do get the education earlier on, Aang is a quick study yeah and like he when we see that education in uh what was it waterbending scroll uh yeah i think so ang outpaces katara mm-hmm. we've already talked about how you know when azula and ang fight it is close we establish mm-hmm. in omashu we establish before the rest of the gang it gets gives there ang that sense of danger that he does yeah. he hasn't gotten in other Azula places before. v ang is a close fight so by extension if katara v azula is a close fight then katara is kind of close on that level with I th- ang well, i think i think what makes it so interesting for katara v azula for me as well is that azula is kind of frustrated with how much katara can match her mm, yeah because she expects the avatar to be naturally very very talented but who are you peasant girl to be coming to my level you have not had the time and training and skills and everything that I've been given to ever be at my level. I don't think Azula would see Toph the same way because Toph is a Beifong and the Beifongs are known throughout the Avatar world as the richest, most powerful and everything. So So, clearly she could afford the teachers. Yeah, exactly. But who is Katara to come and step to her and try to take her down? She is nothing. And so the fact that this girl who comes from nothing could have, what, through practice gotten to her level is unthinkable for her. And so it's there's a frustration that Katara brings out in Azula that she doesn't get from Aang, but that is also so similar to her and Zuko that she can't even make the connection herself. I love it. Yep. And we're just gonna see that build up to the finale. (laughs) And the Avengers moment. Azula v. Everyone. They assembled. This All is the we f- needed was them in a clump and the camera spinning around them, and it's the Avengers. Yes. Now, this is the first time that all elements are being shot at one target. And boomerang. And so I need to talk about this because this is a moment that, like, I think I think I've brought this up to you, but... For listeners who have not seen the in-depth analysis that I've read and looked at about this, everyone shoots at the same time at Azula, 
including Sokka, who throws his boomerang. Azula has to defend against every single attack. The first thing that she blocks is the boomerang. She blocks the boomerang first and then takes out everyone else. She clocks the boomerang as the biggest threat to her in that moment of staring down Iroh, Zuko, Toph, Katara, Aang. It's the boomerang. I mean, she's running around with a team of non-benders. Mm-hmm. She respects non-bending martial arts. Yes, absolutely. And you have gone on this rant to me before. <laughs> I don't know if you recall, but I believe two days after you went on this rant to me the first time was <laughs> when I pitched this show to you. And I said, remember when you went on that rant about the boomerang in the fight at the end of the chase in the ghost town? Yeah, we're going to turn that into a show. (laughs) I love that that's the moment that inspired like, oh, man, I need to record Kelly saying this. Yeah. (laughs) This is it. The moment we've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. The moment that inspired this show. It it is... It is that level of detail that I appreciate about this show that, you know, and and I'll 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 find the I'll find the posts for the show notes and everything that I saw about it. But the boomerang is something that could knock her out entirely. The earth bending will take her off her feet. The fire bending, she's dealt with that before. Water, uh, she's she just was handling that. Um, and air that could kind of cancel out some of the firebending. Who knows? Might get in the like, you know, but the boomerang is the threat that would make her unconscious and make all the other things not possible to defend. So she has to take that out first. And if I, I feel if most of the other characters were in her shoes, they would not have taken the boomerang as seriously. They might have laughed at it, depending on the character. They might have forgotten it was coming. Like, like, I can picture Aang in her shoes and, like, taking her, oh, yeah, boom, boomerang. But Zuko also, forgot about the boomerang. Zuko has forgotten about the boomerang. Toph doesn't even count Sokka in the numbers. I mean, how, how would Toph defend against the boomerang? How would Toph recognize the boomerang is coming? Well, later on, she could. Not yeah, now. Not now. Not now. But, uh, yeah, so it is It is a brilliant moment, and it's it's an iconic moment for me. It's one of my favorite moments of all time. All time. All right. So we have the Azula v. Everyone showdown at the end. Mm -hmm. There's a very clear moment where it's made painfully obvious that Iroh figures out, like Iroh spots Toph in in the Avengers Assembly. And remembers who she was from tea time. And he goes, oh, that's where she belongs. Like, that's what I feel comes across him. Yeah, and puts it I all together to... that, yep. like, he's well, advising one of the Avatar's teammates. Mm-hmm. And, like, great love that for him. Glad he gets that. Do you think Toph recognizes him? Not yet, because she hasn't heard him. I think she recognizes him once he's hurt. Do you think Azula figures out that Iroh recognizes one of them differently. Absolutely not. Because it's right after Iroh recognizes Toph that Azula takes out Iroh. So I think that, I think that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. But 
from my perspective and what I've thought about so far, I don't think she recognizes that acknowledgement. I think if she takes out Iroh, she knows Zuko will be distracted. She also knows the Avatar and his gang are good guys. They're going to be concerned about the person who got hurt. They're just so good. They took... They took care of the baby that they kidnapped, okay, during the middle of the fight thing. Like, they're just so good. That's a cute baby. But I think, I don't know that Iroh is, ranks that important to her in recognizing what he's recognizing. I think they operate on such different levels that it's not important to her what he notices because it will never be the right choice. She very much dismisses everything he does and chooses to do. I mean, she thinks he's a coward, that he didn't step up, like various other things. And she's thought that since she was a since she was very small. So I don't think it's as important to her. But maybe I need to rewatch it and see how much she might notice. I think I want to go through it like almost frame by frame. Yeah, I think it's a lot, especially with that with that final little bit there. I mean, I was going frame by frame to analyze the boomerang stuff. So is it is it out of line for me to be doing that for a little bit more? Absolutely not. Um, Yeah, absolutely not. Why does Katara offer to help Zuko? Earlier in the episode, Katara mentions that they haven't seen Zuko since the Northern Water Tribe, where they also saw Iroh. And Iroh fought with them. Iroh fought in defense of the spirits. Iroh is redeemable in Katara's eyes. I don't think Katara sees Iroh as evil. I don't know if Katara sees Zuko as evil right now. Mm, interesting. I'd have to. I'd have to watch their interactions in this episode again, which they're not many. But I don't. I don't think Katara sees Zuko as necessarily good, or maybe she doesn't see him as even fully redeemable quite yet. But I do think she doesn't see him as complete evil. I would argue against that because I think I think you're onto something with Iroh being redeemable for her. Because in that battle at the North Pole, she sees Iroh take his stance. Zuko does not uh, does not show his place in the battle to her. Um, he takes the exact opposite. He's like, you know, I, you know, I rise with the sun. He attacks her, and even when they save him, he is seemingly ungrateful. The only person who is grateful is Iroh. So, and I think she has had enough interactions with Zuko, you know, trying to kill them and capture them and various other things that Zuko is not redeemable for her right now. I think we're going to, I don't know how long it is until the episode that I'm thinking of. Um, But we'll get there. But we'll get there and uh, we'll get to see them level with each other. But going into that episode, she says that he's evil. Like he's not he's not a person to her. He's always he's always been this big, bad, evil guy. So I'll have to look for that going forward. Yeah. But uh, I, I think you're on to something with her seeing Iroh as redeemable. Thank you for listening to The Pie Show. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find our show notes at thepieshow.fm slash 28. If you'd like to reach us, you can send us a tweet at thepieshow or email us at thepieshowpodcast at gmail.com. 